It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. I am so pleased to say uh, we are going to focus on emerging markets, assets, and the nations themselves with somebody who has been a pivotal player in many of the restructurings done throughout the developing world over the past number of decades. Bill Rhodes, uh, senior advisor for Citi, uh, who helped in the 1980s and 1990s negotiate a lot of the uh, rescue financing packages in the developing world, currently president and chief executive officer of William Rhodes Global Advisors. Bill, always phenomenal to have you on the show. And I want to start with the coronavirus and its impact, the humanitarian impact on emerging markets. We don't talk about it that much. What do you glean as you travel, as you talk, uh, you know, whether it's travel virtually or talk with your contacts, as far as how, how prevalent the virus is and how damaging it's been? First of all, it's great to be on you uh, with you guys, Lisa. And um, I think um, the impact is going to be substantial. Uh, on, on uh, most parts of the emerging markets. Uh, I think uh, uh, we're already seeing this uh, in, uh, in Latin America, uh, in the case of Brazil, it's hitting Mexico, and of course in Asia, we've, you know, we've seen a lot of it because it started in, uh, in China, migrated to South Korea, and I must say the South Koreans have done the best job of getting testing out there and controlling it. But uh, some of the economies uh, in Southeast Asia are also being hit very hard. India, uh, you've had a second wave uh, in, uh, in Singapore, Malaysia. Uh, so I think that uh, in countries like Turkey and the Middle East and others are being hit. So uh, I think this is a delayed reaction. The area that people are most concerned about at this point is Africa, uh, because uh, they don't have the hospitals uh, and they don't have the health systems in place. Uh, and so I think that uh, the emerging markets are going to be hit particularly hard, much more than the developed markets that we've seen today. So it's interesting, Bill. Let's focus a little bit on Latin America. Um, where is some of the big risks there? I, you know, some of the issues you highlight about Africa in terms of health care and, and sanitation and so on, a lot of that applies to many parts of Latin America. What are you most concerned about? Well, I think the situation in Brazil, it's the largest country, and uh, the president, Bolsonaro, doesn't want to admit that there's a problem. And he's battling with his own, uh, with his own Congress and many of the governors. And the, the fear there, because it's a country of 215, 220 million people, and the fear there is that uh, this thing could get out of hand. And, of course, they've been going through a, a period of difficulty in an economy for the last five years. Uh, and so I think this, this could be a very difficult situation. 
Uh, you also have the impact of the Venezuelan refugees all throughout Latin America, some five million of them, uh, which exacerbates the situation because a lot of them bring things like malaria and other things with them. And so it's, uh, it's a real problem. I was uh, Earlier this year, I was in Trinidad and Guyana, where you have a lot of uh, Venezuelan refugees and uh, also northern Brazil in the uh, state of Roraima. Venezuela is a complete disaster area in the sense that uh, uh, the, the health system completely has collapsed already under Maduro. And uh, what could happen there is could be a real humanitarian uh, crisis uh, with COVID-19 uh, in a place like Venezuela. So if you ask me what country I'm most concerned about uh, in the sense of, of the hit, it's probably Venezuela as far as the impact on the most number of people who would be Brazil. So I'm curious, the the answer in the developing world, in the developed world, I should say, has been to uh, socially distance, shut down businesses and governments are just flooding people with money or trying to in order to stave off the economic damage. What has the response been like both financially as well as socially in some of these developing markets, particularly in Latin America? Well, I think that... Uh we're still, I think, unfortunately, at the early stages. You know, I did this op-ed uh, on the 8th of April uh, talking about uh, my concerns is that the markets were underestimating uh, the dangers of, of, of COVID-19 because, to me, it smells somewhat of the Spanish flu problems of uh, 1918, 19, and 20, where the first rounds uh, gave people the... Uh, the feeling uh, that it was all over, and they, and the the real hit came in the second round, second and third rounds, and and so there's real concern uh, that the worst is yet to come. So, Bill, we haven't really necessarily. It's kind of been country by country, and even within the United States, state by state, focusing on efforts to uh, get this under control. Is there a mechanism for a kind of a global response? Because I think about some of these emerging markets, and I'm just not sure they can do it on their own. I think that's very correct, Paul. I can't. And uh, what I advocated in my op-ed was uh, sort of a recreation of the spirit of Gordon Brown uh, when he put together uh, the uh, G20 uh, countries uh, as a response to the global economic crisis at that time when he was prime minister in 2009, was heading the G20. And I think the IMF, World Bank, were all involved in that. But I think this is much more serious. And you see they're talking about uh, suspension of uh, debt payments, uh, you know, for the most needy countries, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, and uh, uh, <clears throat> the G20 has talked about that through the end of the year, but that's not going to be sufficient. And right. then you, ha- you have the aid that, uh, for instance, the Europeans and the, uh, the U.S. have been giving these countries right along, and they're now in a strap situation. We are speaking with our good friend, Bill Rhodes. Bill's the president and CEO of uh, William Rhodes Global Advisors. He was former chairman at Citibank. We were talking about the outsized effect likely to have on emerging markets from the coronavirus. And Bill, does there really need to be a global response to help out some of these emerging markets, which may have you know, limited capabilities to kind of uh, take care of their own populations? I think without a doubt, uh, there needs to be something more done and the G20 is done. I think the IMF and World Bank uh, are looking at announcing additional programs, although they are now talking about programs that they've never done before. And so you have to have a united response through the, the G20 rather than a one-off type situation. And uh, then just to change it uh, for a moment, when you take a look at the EU and uh, 
and uh, the EC, uh, you know, it's the situation that the EU is going through, who have been major uh, suppliers of aid to a lot of these countries, they are in a difficult situation themselves. I mean, Spain's had over 21,000 deaths. Italy, very similar. And uh, they are struggling to keep the uh, EU together and talking about a, a rescue package for those countries of a, of a trillion to a trillion and a half euros. Uh, and this type of thing will also help the emerging markets because uh, that will push, I think, the uh, G20 to do more if their own economies are being taken care of to help the emerging markets. But this is the most difficult period I can remember for the emerging markets in my lifetime. In your lifetime, you mean more even than the Latin American crisis? More uh, even than the Latin American crisis, Asian financial crisis, uh, any of them, uh, because <clears throat> uh, this is coming out of nowhere. And a lot of these countries, uh, Lisa, as, as you and I have discussed with Paul in the past, um, have borrowed very heavily in foreign currencies uh, to support their economies. And with a strong dollar, uh, this is going to be a real problem. So I think you're going to have a wave of debt restructurings are also going to hit the emerging markets. And they're going to be very, very difficult because the creditors themselves have problems. So we're in for a very, very difficult strain period, uh, you know, with, without a doubt. And then, of course, a number of these countries are oil exporters. Venezuela, uh, you know, Brazil, I could run through them, a number of countries in Africa, and they're going to be hard hit because of the collapse in the price, uh, the price of uh, crude and the price of oil. So all told, it's going to be a very difficult period for the emerging markets in the immediate future. There's also a question of China's role in financing some of the developing worlds. We've uh, heard, I mean, they don't report the numbers, but there are billions of dollars of loans that China has extended throughout that entire world. How does that complicate efforts to restructure some of these debts? I think it's a very important point, Lisa, because, you know, the One Belt, uh, One Road uh, program, which uh, Xi Jinping has been pushing for the last seven or eight years, has led uh, hundreds of billions of dollars to these countries, and a lot of the terms are not clear. And one of the, the concerns is, uh, is how the Chinese are going to push these countries to repay. And so far, the Chinese haven't announced any sort of program of debt forgiveness. Uh, they're talking about taking assets in these countries or stretching it out. The other thing, which, since you mentioned China, which I think we have to keep in mind, is remember in the Great Recession, the country, and you have to give them their due, that helped pull uh, the world out of, of what could have been a Great Depression was China, because they pushed anywhere from $800 billion to a $1 trillion dollars uh, into the markets because their financial system was very strong, and commodities uh, in particular benefited construction, uh, this is why Brazil and a number of the emerging market countries were able to get through because they were able to sell their commodities to China. Well, the Chinese, because of their high debt load, are no longer in a position uh, themselves to pull the world out. So we can't look any, uh, for any particular savior at this point. That's why the work of the G20 uh, needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, worked out in an orderly fashion because no one country is going to pull us out. So, Bill, I kind of always, when I think about emerging markets, you know, people tell me the IMF is there, but I always feel like the IMF is fairly limited in, in their resources, and it will come down to the G20 or maybe even the United States of America. How do you think the U.S. will, what do you think the U.S. will have to do here as we think about the emerging markets in terms of uh, support? 
Well, that's a good question because it's not clear where Trump stands on this, where President Trump stands on this. And you're right about the IMF. Even with the additional resources they're trying to put in, uh, one of the suggestions had been they go back to the idea of having a special drawing rights. But so far, uh, the G7 countries haven't agreed to that, including the United States, which which would beef up uh, their ability to help these countries. Uh, So... The United States is very key. The two countries, or let's say the three entities are key to the revival of the emerging markets, are the United States, China, and the EU. Paul Rhodes, thank you so much for being with us. We always love hearing your insights. Uh, A really important time to be getting them. Banker to the World, Bill Rhodes, author of the book, that is a banker to the world. I recommend you read it. It is a fascinating read. He is also the president and chief executive officer of William Rhodes Global Advisors and a senior advisor to Citigroup. I mean, it's really uh, an amazing perspective to have Paul given his uh, the restructurings that he's been involved with uh, in a number of different places. Right now, we are looking at emerging market currencies that have been clobbered. I mean, this has been a really rough year for them as the dollar has remained ascendant, although you are seeing a little bit of a from that now. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. So, Lisa, I'm looking uh, at gold. We've been spending a lot of time looking at oil over the past few days, but gold just continues to march higher, up another 1.3% today to $1,707 per ounce. Uh, A very good-looking chart as well. Everett Millman, precious metals strategist for Gainesville Coins, joins us on the phone based in Gainesville, Florida. So, Everett, thanks so much for joining us here. Give us the story behind this nice-looking chart for gold. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Paul. Um, Well, the conventional wisdom over the past two decades or so has been don't fight the Fed, right? But in this case, not fighting the Fed means having exposure to gold. Um, The huge heap of stimulus that has come from the Federal Reserve and other central banks is definitely a tailwind for gold right now. And the amount of that stimulus and added liquidity are only expected to grow in the coming months. Um, So we've seen really a repricing of assets in terms of relative value to one another. And gold has emerged from that as the biggest beneficiary. Um, If you consider that the last time that the dollar, the DXY index, was consistently around 100, as it is right now, back in 2017, gold was trading below 1,300. So we've rallied quite a bit in a short amount of time. Uh, Gold has definitely picked up some ground on the dollar and on other assets, but uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some near-term weakness given how fast this rally has come. 
That's interesting, near-term weakness. I was looking at some reports. A lot of people bullish uh, over the medium term, Bank of America raising its 18-month gold price target to $3,000 an ounce, uh, which is more than 50% above where it is currently trading. I'm just wondering, Everett, a lot of people think of gold as a hedge against uh, risk-off periods of time. It has not behaved in a predictable manner on a day-to-day basis in that way. It also is considered a a hedge against inflation And right now, inflation is nowhere to be found in interest rate traders' uh, projections if you take a look out five, 10 years. So what's the argument for gold on a theoretical level? Right. Um, We've absolutely seen that these intraday moves have been rather noisy. Uh, It's been a bit of a roller coaster ride. And I think that has to do with some of the patterns we've seen that are in parallel to um, what the Federal Reserve did in 2008 to try and rescue the economy. They followed a very similar playbook um, in terms of scope and scale. And we've seen that volatility has been elevated and gold has traded in a wider range. Um, all that huge raft of stimulus at some point down the road, we would expect to be rather inflationary, and that would be gold positive. Um, but as I said, the near-term weakness is still a possible concern given this wide volatility. Um, remember that as recently as last summer, less than a year ago, gold futures hadn't cracked above 1360 an ounce in almost seven years. So these, these are levels that we haven't seen in quite a while. I think there will be some consolidation following that. And something else that I've been taking note of is that uh, algorithmic traders and some automatic rebalancing in portfolios during these risk-off situations could trigger some more sell-offs in gold. Um, and the most recent data from the CME shows that a significant amount of activity in gold futures, um, as much as possibly two-thirds, has been driven by the algos, and that suggests that these volatile swings for gold may not be over. Um, One of the lessons that we've learned from 2008 is that gold tends to shine brightest once the economy starts recovering from a crisis like this. So I think once we get some respite from the coronavirus pandemic or on the other side of this, that is when I will be most bullish for gold over the medium term. So, Everett, I look at the, the year-to-date performance, uh, spot gold up about 12.5%. Then I look at another metal, silver, and I thought I'd see something similar, but no, it's off almost 16% year-to-date. What's the story on silver? We could see, at least if for a short period of time, silver kind of decoupling from gold. Um, as we look at the gold-to-silver ratio, it is still well above 110, I think close to 113 um, that is obviously a historical extreme, but it's been pretty durable, this gap between gold and silver, and it challenges some of our assumptions about whether or not silver will continue to follow gold in terms of safe haven demand. We may not see silver prices catch up with gold until later this year because of its sensitivity to the health of uh, the industrial sector. That really doesn't bode well for silver until the global economy starts to reopen, um, so that is what I'll be looking for in terms of silver, you know, reclaiming some of its precious metal status, because otherwise right now it has behaved much like an industrial metal. Interesting. Everett, as we talk about oil and really the focus in the commodity space has been on oil and how the physical presence of it is not desired right now, how is the physical commodity of gold and silver trading in comparison with futures contracts? That is a fantastic question. Um, We've seen that those physical markets, the -the over-the-counter market, has become a bit unmoored um, from paper trading. And that's because you do have two different sets of motivations for those market participants. Um, In gold futures on one side, you have a lot of institutional players 
they're basically chasing the short-term price dynamics of gold. But in the physical market, you have almost the opposite motivation. You have retail buyers who um, they want to buy and hold physical to keep for the long term. Uh, so this spread that we've seen between future and spot prices, it is unusually wide. It means that arbitrage is not functioning normally and price discovery is perhaps a bit impaired. But two things should help alleviate that and we should see that spread come back into a more normal range once uh, uh, the reopening of several government mints in Canada, Western Australia, the Rand Refinery in South Africa, and as of yesterday, the West Point branch of the U.S. Mint is also resuming operations. And then yeah. secondly, the uh, flexible CME gold futures contract should also clear up some of those logistical backlogs that are causing that gap between futures and spots. Everett Millman, thank you so much for being with us and all my best to you. Everett Millman, precious metal specialist at Gainesville Coins, talking about the future of gold in the near as well as the medium term. Lisa, I'm looking at some of these airline stocks. We've been talking about them really since the beginning of the crisis, really one of the first groups to get hit and get hit the hardest. Delta year-to-date, these are all year-to-date numbers. Delta down 60%, United down 70 American down nearly 70%, so just getting decimated. We had some numbers out of Delta. Let's get the latest. We welcome Bloomberg uh, Intelligence Senior Aerospace Analyst George Ferguson. He's been covering the space for decades. George, thanks so much for joining us. What did we learn here from Delta uh, with the numbers. Hey, good morning. I think what we learned is that um, um, the way forward is very unclear, I think is what we learned. And they burned a bit more cash than we had expected. Uh, They're working very, very hard to bring down cash burn every day. They think they can get themselves to $50 million of cash burn per day. Uh, by the beginning of May, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, And they confirmed when asked about forward bookings, they confirmed that we continue, I think in in a direct quote from Delta Management, we continue to bounce along the bottom about 5% uh, of what we did last year. That's the the number of people sort of flying this year. Uh, Just people that absolutely have to fly, demand is about zero. So demand about zero. The question is, and and when and when the discussion on the earnings call is not about earnings at all, but just how they can stay alive for the foreseeable future. Do we have a sense of how long the big airlines can continue to bleed cash until the economy gets back up to at least even half pace or, or a fraction of what it once was? Yeah, so uh, Delta Delta did actually, you know, give their their uh, give a sense for how long they thought they could survive, and I actually thought that was actually also something quite interesting. They thought they could survive till the end of the year. Uh, you know, we'd have to dig deeper into some of those assumptions. They definitely have to raise some more money uh, to, to hit their target for where they want to be for cash at the end of the second quarter. But you know, yeah, I think in the next. For 2Q and 3Q, the discussion is really going to be at all the major airlines about uh, how much they can get cash burned down. I would say they told us 33% of their employees, that to make sure that number was right, took voluntary leave, right? So they're really trying to lay off that labor cost pretty hard and get cash burned down. Remember, Delta, though, was one of the, one of the better positioned airlines going into the downturn. They were investment grade. They've been digging through the balance sheet to find anything and everything uh, that they could use for collateral for loans. 
Um, and so that means that if they can survive at the end of the year, others others can't. So, George, give us a sense, just a snapshot, how the industry did in terms of fiscal stimulus, getting money, uh, support from the government, what they've gotten, and what maybe they're still trying to get. Yeah, so uh, Delta said they got, a, I think it was $2.7 billion in already. I mean, really where we are, I think is very interesting as you look at the industry. You know, the, the government has provided them grants, and they've provided them an opportunity for loans. And the grants are really to support the um, payment of employees for the next two quarters. And so everyone is lined up to take the grants. Why wouldn't you? Um, and the um, But the, the loans... And again, those are just cover employee costs. The loans uh, they could take out for five years, um, but for those five years plus an additional year, a year after the loan has has been paid off, they can't pay dividends. They can't buy back shares, and they have to limit employer compensation. Sorry, employee compensation, especially for highly compensated uh, employees. People over three million dollars get sort of specific caps. And so we're sort of seeing a number of them. It looks like Southwest. It looks like Delta. It looks like United contemplate these loans from the government, but not take them yet. They have time to take them. And I think they're trying to figure out, again, how bad this downturn is going to be, because none of us really know whether they can weather the storm without these loans, whether there's other loan opportunities in the marketplace. So they don't have to hem themselves in with those, uh, you know, return return cash to shareholder sort of options as well as uh, employee compensation. So there's more money coming, potentially like $25 billion in loans to the industry. I'm not sure they all want to take it. George Ferguson, thank you so much for being with us. I'm sure a year ago, if we thought that we would be having this conversation, it would have thought been uh, fictitious or you know absolutely out of the question. And yet here we are, George Ferguson, Senior Aerospace Defense and Airlines Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Delta, which has been one of the stronger players consistently, shares down 61% year to date, even as they say they can survive through the end of the year. And presumably at some point, there will be a resurgence and global demand for travel, although for right now, it's basically nothing. Right now, let's switch gears and talk about those markets. We can do that with Samir Samana. Samir is Senior Global Market Strategist for Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Wells Fargo has about $1.6 trillion under management. He's based in uh, San Francisco, uh, St. Louis, actually. Samir, thanks so much for joining us. So let's just start. You know, the markets have been extraordinarily volatile, but let's just start with oil. What did you make of the performance of oil and the tremendous volatility, the negative pricing that we've seen in oil this week? Sure. You know, oil, you know, at least uh, the front month contract that went negative for, you know, a very brief period of time was really impacted by, you know, storage uh, shortages that then, you know, led to a lot of futures holders basically realizing that, you know, they're going to either have to take physical delivery or they need to, you know, promptly get out of the contract, which is what led to um, those negative prices. You know, I think oil, you know, some of the out month contracts is probably one of the few markets, at least right now, um, that most accurately reflects kind of what's going on with COVID-19 and just how quickly a stoppage in economic activity that we've seen that will only slowly um, resume. Now, again, it should trade at positive levels, but I think it is telling you um, that the recovery will be, you know, neither swift um, and, uh, you know, 
you know, the, the divot won't be all that shallow. All right, so Samir, let's let's start there. Uh, what are the good folks at Wells Fargo? What's kind of your base case for kind of how this economy will shake out? I mean, I I, I don't hear the V recovery spoken about too much recently. Uh, I think most people are kind of thinking about gee, some kind of U-shaped recovery where it might last several quarters, uh, or maybe even something even more dire. What, what what's the folks at Wells Fargo thinking? Sure. So we, we would say, you know, the second quarter will probably be the worst quarter from a growth standpoint. And then the third quarter will be, you know, pretty bad, but maybe not as bad as the second quarter as things slowly start to come back online. Um, and then hopefully by the fourth quarter of this year and first quarter of next year, there's some stability. And, you know, we think there will be some payback, you know, especially on the, you know, the earnings front for corporations um, by the end of next year. So hopefully that's how it works. You know, as far as whether it takes a U-shape or, you know, uh, I've heard some people refer to it as a swoosh. Um, <laughs> you know, it's still kind of to be seen. It, it'll depend, you know, mainly on how quickly things come back online, you know, whether there's a redux in the fall of, of new cases and whether there's additional stoppages. Um, but I think probably the takeaway is um, second quarter will probably be the worst of it, and then we'll start to see hopefully a slow recovery by the end of this year that will pick up steam into next year. Interesting. So we, we've had a really sharp rebound. Just talk about the U.S. equity markets here, a really sharp rebound off of that, what was about a 32% you know, peak uh, to trough pullback that we saw back in March. Do you think it, the snapback rally has been too much too soon, or do you kind of figure it's kind of the beginning of a bottoming process for the equity markets? So it's a little of both. You know, we, we would say, you know, this is part of the buying process. You tend to have kind of the big drawdown, and then you tend to have an equally spectacular kind of snapback, right, which which kind of sucks everybody back in and makes them think that, you know, well, well the initial drawdown was the one that, you know, maybe wasn't right, and, you know, we're, we're kind of off to the races. And what folks will realize in the coming months and quarters is that the bottoming process is more of a marathon than a sprint. And what you tend to have as kind of the second and the longer phase of the bottoming process is the one where you spend quite a bit of time in a wide, volatile range trying to figure out, one, what the exact economic and earnings outlook looks like, and then, two, what valuation level or multiple you may want to pay on those earnings. So we would kind of settle in here, and we think, you know, right here in the 2800 to 2900 that we've seen um, the last few days, it's probably the upper end of the range. It's probably pretty close to fair value. So here we would be pulling back on lower quality areas like energy, materials, industrials, um, emerging market equities, developed market equities, small cap equities. This is the time to kind of pair back uh, if you were lucky enough to get in close to the lows. And then you kind of wait uh, until we see, hopefully, in, in our opinion, a level at least south of 2600. Because before you know, we get below 2600, we're not sure we see a whole lot of value in chasing these markets and, and really – um, as you get closer to 2450, that's where you maybe want to kind of pick up steam in terms of buying areas such as information technology, communication services, consumer discretionary, financials, and then large cap and mid cap equities in the U.S. All right, Samir. So we've seen the Federal Reserve be fairly aggressive, uh, I would call it, uh, on some of their movements here in terms of injecting liquidity into the marketplace. We're starting to get, we've, we've gotten some fiscal stimulus. It looks like we're going to get another package in the next uh, several days. Is this something that the markets have to have an absent and aggressive fiscal stimulus? You're less uh, confident in the ability of the market to kind of bottom here and, and maybe start building? 
You know, I appreciate what the Fed and, and Congress have done. It probably removes some of the left tail risk. Some of the downside um, scenarios that could play out are probably removed by their actions, by their swift actions. Um, that being said, you know, again, you know, they can't quite, you know, manufacture a vaccine out of thin air or make folks go out after work or go out on weekends. I mean, China's a great example, right, where, you know, there's good data now that shows during the week you know, things are 80 to 90 percent back to where they were, you know, prior to the coronavirus. But then when you look at weekend levels of activity, they're only, you know, a tenth or, you know, 20 percent of where they were pre-coronavirus. And what that shows you is, you know, people are, are you know, willing to go to work in order to, you know, get a paycheck. But what they're not willing to do is spend discretionary time or money uh, outside the home quite yet. And that's, you know, what makes a large part of the U.S. economy. And so, um, the Fed will support asset prices. They will help provide a little bit of a bridge to the other side of this. Um, that being said, you know, much of that volatility will come from what we see as just, again, a real impairment in, in the short run in terms of consumption. Hey, Samir, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your commentary and your thoughts. Samir Samana, Senior Global Market Strategist at Wells Fargo Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.